millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim, and I work at Prospect Magazine. This week, we talk to writer Peter Salmon about the life and work of French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Salmon is the author of a recent biography of this controversial yet unavoidable theorist, which is reviewed in the new issue of Prospect, which is out on the newsstands now. Though Derrida is often denounced as an inscrutable charlatan, Peter Salmon's biography shows him as a thoughtful, creative and conflicted thinker. And besides, Peter tells us, Derrida has much to teach us about our debates on identity and truth today. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Terrific to be asked. Well, Jacques Derrida is one of those rare philosophers in that he seems to have become a modern phenomenon. His words are published on t-shirts, there's film documentaries have been made about him. Terms like uh, deconstruction and closure are now uh, familiar parts of journalistic lexicon. He's also, of course, a figure of intense dislike, even hate for some people. People have accused him of being, you know, the father of postmodernism, destroying all that is good and holy about intellectual endeavour. Some have even said that he's led to our post-truth age and uh, caused the rise of Donald Trump. So this seems to be an awful lot to lay at the door of uh, uh, one person and a lot that is, you know, appropriately enough, very contradictory. Um, Your aim in the book seems to try and get down and explain as clearly as possible what he actually thought. Is that right? Yeah, that is. I mean, I I had similar sorts of views of Derrida. I'm I'm probably like a lot of people who've been to university, Derrida's in in all of the courses in, to some extent. Someone you can kind of dip into, but not actually read. He's very, he is quite hard to read. There's no way of getting around that. Um, so he was in the in the ether. Um, but what seemed to be missing was an analysis of him as a philosopher. He very much sort of comes into particularly the Anglosphere, but a little bit in the, in, in the, in the continental world as well, as someone who arrives fully formed with these incredibly controversial views. And the, the actual philosophical work he did to get there is forgotten. When I approached him, I really thought, okay, I want to go back to the start. I want to go back to see where this came from. Um, and by following his work on philosophy, you, see, you do see what a deep thinker he is. And in fact, a, a lover of philosophy and a lover of the, the search for truth, as it were, but someone who's really 
going hard at it and trying to work out what the fault is. Why, why after all these years, in a sense, we are still looking for truth. What is the function of truth there? Now, that's been kind of ripped from, from deconstruction and taken as he's post-truth or he doesn't believe there's truth and, and all those sorts of things. Whereas, in fact, deconstruction and Derrida are agnostic about whether there's truth or not. What they do do is look at what truth means, how it's created, how it's constructed. And that, that is kind of the key insight of, of deconstruction, if you want to say a key insight inside of deconstruction. Um, but that does have the capacity to annoy a lot of people if, if you know this is the if this is the thing we're looking for either in life as you know, personal beings going about our, our world or particularly if you're a philosopher whose life is spent looking for truth if that's the aim then to have someone come in and destabilize that and destabilize it really at its root is problematic so i wanted to say okay Derrida's is not just coming in as the latest french philosopher and saying it's all rubbish it's all a load of nonsense he's a much deeper thinker than that and that the aim of the book was, in a sense, to find out how he got to the place where people have these contradictory views of him. Yeah, what well, strikes me that he he's not really um, ironic and superficial at all, really. He's incredibly passionate and engaged and um, desirous to get at the heart of things. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was one of the things that really surprised and, and I have to say moved me when when reading him. You know, he has this this he has a love of truth. He, ha he wants to know what philosophy is doing. He loves philosophy. You know, there, there, there is a kind of feeling you should have read everything before you read Derrida in order to get all of his references. But there's no sense of detachment at all. But what he does want to do, he comes out of the phenomenological tradition in France. And, and in France, he's much more seen as being part of that tradition. He wants to describe the world. He wants to know what the world is like to be lived in. And the thing is that that's philosophy as religion has often as, as as many things have often try to sort of get a real sort of precise clarified version of the world you know truth what is truth what is a, what is the good how do we behave morally in fact in our real life we're complete relativists about this sort of thing we have different truths that we take on at different times we we when we write when we read we don't have this coherent version of, of meaning so I, I really was amazed respected and and thought had to think deeply about the fact that he is trying to describe the world as it is lived and as it is lived is a lot messier than the version that's being put forward by to take you know some examples like Russell or A.J. Eyre and so forth in the English tradition, where language and reality somehow cohere. Actually, in our day-to-day -day lives, that's not the case. And they really had to twist and distort language to try and make it the case. Derrida is much more interested in how language is actually happening around us, how we talk to each other. It's not getting rid of all of that, but it's saying you, you have to look at the world and how it operates rather than the advertised version that philosophy tries to put forward or strives towards. So this is a, a biography of uh, Derrida. It says life as well as his ideas, and perhaps one of the, the, the ways into his thought is to talk a little bit about um, his background. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and how um, that might have affected the way he approached the world? Yeah, absolutely. Derrida was born in Algeria in 1930. It was significant for many, many reasons. It was the hundredth anniversary of, of France taking over Algeria. He grew up uh, amongst the Piedmois, so he was French. All of his schooling was French. Uh, all the languages he learnt was French. All the history he learnt was French. The street names were French and all of those things. So in, in some sense, he's French, although he, he always refers to that as the over there. France is the over there that in, in his life. But he's growing up in Algeria, surrounded by an Arab population. Also, he's Jewish. And all of these things are identities where 
he can't settle in any one of them and also isn't allowed to settle in any one of them in some ways. His, his skin was actually quite dark, so he was often mistaken for an Arab by the French. He spoke French, so the, the Arabs regarded him as French. Jewish community was very much secularised, particularly where he was growing up. Um, you know, the synagogue was called the temple and so forth. So all of these things are going on, as they must have been for so many people at that, at that time. What happens and what is crucial in his life? Um, as he thought, and as I, I think, was at the age of 13, which is 1943, Vichy France, and he was always very certain of the fact it was nothing to do with the National Socialists, it was Vichy France, said, introduced a quota system in schools, which eventually got rid of the Jewish population from um, Algerian schools. Uh, Derrida then had to study at a Jewish school with all the Jewish teachers who had also been thrown out. And this was a huge shock in his life, um, although he obviously knew he was Jewish. He didn't really identify as that. His family didn't identify as that. They had, they had some ritual sort of stuff around it. But suddenly this new identity is imposed on him. And after a year, because the fortunes of the war change, it's taken away. It's, it's taken away again. But he's back to being a citizen. Citizenship had gone. So this kind of taking away of identity, giving identity, all of these things that happen outside of the self are a huge issue for him. And an issue which continues to inform his work throughout his life. I mean, he does often say, you can't just say, I'm, I'm the philosopher I am because of that. But in his later, more autobiographical writings, he does say, but of course, this, you know, if I, if I was in different circumstances and my identity hadn't been so confused, I would not be exploring the issues I am. And he later wrote quite movingly and interestingly about borders refugees, about senses of identity. And for him, this was just absolutely crucial and crucial in starting to establish that idea that he has, that things aren't fixed, that all of the anchors we try and put on things, you know, God anchors religion, justice anchors law, truth anchors philosophy, knowing who we are anchors identity. All of those things are up for grabs. They're disputed, they're created. And so that was a huge part of who he was, I think. So he comes, as he says, as he's a child on the margins of Europe, he comes into France, he goes into the elite institutions. He takes on, as it were, the entire sort of Western philosophical tradition. He does. Absolutely. Because well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, why, why wouldn't you? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what you, what you want to do. If we can get into yeah. sort of, this might get technical, but I think we need to sort of get into what exactly uh, was, was his difficulty with the way that philosophers had traditionally approached searching for truth, let's say. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to jump forward slightly to, um, because it happens to be today, the, the anniversary of a paper he gave at Baltimore. Today we're recording 21st of October. He gave a paper at Baltimore, which was at a conference about structuralism. And structuralism, for those who sort of don't know or have a vague sort of idea of it, it basically fixes meaning by saying there's a structure and where something fits within a structure is give, gives it its meaning. So um, a word has its place in the language and its meaning comes from its place in the language and, and, and so on. Um, what he does in the paper he gives, and it's a showbiz moment, he's not supposed to be at the conference, he's the last speaker, he gets up and in half an hour basically takes apart structuralism because he says, okay, take a case like religion. The thing that guarantees that structure, the center he calls it at this stage, is God. Now, God can't actually be part of that structure. God is outside of that structure. As soon as you have God in that structure, there is no more religion. Or to take another case, law, the structure of law is always looking for justice. Justice anchors it. But if you put justice in, then law disappears because you can't have true justice. So he does this to structuralism. Where that comes from, and this is going back to his, his studies, 
was an obsession with Husserl. Um, and there's probably a little bit too much Husserl in the book uh, <laughs> because I, I, I also became fascinated with Husserl. Husserl invents phenomenology. Husserl says there is a world, okay, or maybe there's a world. There's this ongoing philosophical dispute about whether there's a world or not. Let's put that to one side. Let's forget about arguing whether this chair exists or not. But let's have a look at how it affects me. Let's describe the phenomenon of me encountering the chair. I'll describe it, I'll look at it, I'll and, and build my theories from there. The problem Derrida finds with this is that that needs a point from which to stand to look at that chair, which has no concepts already getting in the way. It's, it's a still point, a, a zero point, a, a genetic point, as, as Derrida calls it, and as Husserl called it. And it has to leave out time, for instance, change. It has to leave out a whole lot of a whole lot of things. And this, for Derrida, was the insight. This was the moment he went, hang on, everything's functioning like this. Everything tries to describe the world, but always says that there's this still point from which we can we can observe. So he takes that moment in Husserl and writes a lot about it. His first 10 years of writings are about Husserl um, and says, well, hang on, this is happening throughout philosophy. You know, this is happening throughout religion. This is happening throughout language. You know, we, we approach a novel as though it coheres from a, some vantage point outside. That doesn't work either. We need to actually dive into the mess of it. And this just kept going and going and going at him for a very long time. And a lot of those 10 years were spent in very obscure jobs, doing very obscure things. But I, I, I really do admire the fact that he kept on this thing because we've all had wonderful thoughts of when we're doing philosophy but to actually doggedly follow it through and he knew he was onto something big he didn't know he was onto something big that would make him you know the most famous philosopher in the world or anything like that but he knew that what he'd come up with was really going to destabilize things quite significantly so he has this idea about um language which is related to that isn't it and he, he talks about speech and writing so he talks yes. about this idealization of speech as something that is sort of pure or unsullied as an originary point, and then writing as something that comes later, and then as something more sort of interpretable. But he he says that hierarchy, which he says exists in Western philosophy, is um is all wrong. Yes. Well, he says that any hierarchy is wrong. Basically, he says that any time you have two terms, speech, writing, good, evil, and so forth, you can't just say that one is correct one is incorrect and therefore problem solved they infect each other they cross the, the borderline between them crosses and so forth his insight with speech and writing was was going right back to the dawn of philosophy and we'll, we'll call it plato plato privileges speech over writing aristotle does the same and throughout history he finds this strange and unnerving thing where speech is always given priority and the model of that is you have a thought in your head you turn it into speech, and that what you're saying models is exactly what you thought. I, you then say it. I, as your listener, get it whole, put it in my brain, and the thought has been received. Now, actually, that's not how things seem to work. Um, you know, anyone who's speaking, as I'm speaking at the moment, I don't know what I'm about to say. I have literally no idea. I'm not having this thought and then converting it into words. And again, Husserl is key here because Husserl, again, privileging speech over writing, Husserl actually takes it so far that he says that the only pure language is language you don't say out loud. It's just the thoughts in your head, because if you say it out loud, it's imme immediately contaminated by the world. Now, Derrida says that's not actually what happens. You know, when we speak, A, we're using other people's words, words that we've inherited. B, we're not having the thought first and putting it out there. The other insight he has is that if I have a thought, um, let's go with E equals MC squared. If I have that thought, 
independent of anything else. How do I transfer that? Now I can tell the person next to me that speech. They tell the next person, they tell the next person. But eventually that idea is going to die unless everyone really stays awake and keeps passing that idea on. How do I fix that word, that thought? I write it down. And that writing down gets passed along. And Husserl actually says that the guarantor of scientific stuff, because Husserl's always trying to get back to science, is you write stuff down. And Derrida says, hang on, philosophy keeps doing this. All the philosophy is written down and passed around and so on. And so why do we keep saying that speech is, is the valid thing? And, and he goes through philosophy, essentially pointing out again and again in Rousseau, in Husserl, in Plato, where they've said, speech is great, writing's terrible. Now let me write all of this down so that you understand it. Um, and so for Derrida, that's, that's something he has to turn over. He has to say, no, actually, when we're talking to each other, we're taking on words that we've read, basically, in, in most cases. And this whole hierarchy it is, is, again, looking for this transcendental signified or this metaphysics of presence where somewhere inside us, there is a soul which just speaks to the world and tells our truth. It's not there. That's not how we live. So he, he's saying that whether it likes it or not, a lot of philosophy, um, whether it recognises it or not, is always... Implicitly, implicitly has this anchor. Implicitly has this thing that um, holds it all together. Um, yeah. That, um, but he's saying essentially that anchor doesn't exist, or it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not really there. So you take that away. And what, what if you take it away? What are you? What are you left with? Yeah, he doesn't say it doesn't exist because you can't prove it either way. I mean, again, let's let's use religion and God as an example. Does God exist? That actually can't ever be answered by a human being until you, you die and you find out, basically. Um, so, but religion requires that concept. And it's actually quite like late Wittgenstein. Late Wittgenstein said to, to understand a word, look at how it's used. So again, and I, I do think law and justice is a really nice example. All law is about justice. You know, that is politicians going in every day, changing the laws, all the law courts are about justice. How do we, how do, we do something that's just? You can't actually have pure justice. It doesn't work. If, if, if someone kills, to kill them is not justice because it doesn't even up. Um, so, so law is built on, on, on this idea of justice. Now, what Derrida is not saying is that the whole thing then collapses. You take away justice or you take away God and so forth. What he is saying is, isn't it fascinating? Okay, God, truth generates philosophy. Derrida loves that it generates philosophy. Derrida loves this striving because it, it throws up ideas, it throws up ways of being, it throws up concepts, it throws up epistemes and so forth. So he's just saying it's interesting that that concept does this, that it anchors all of those things. He's not saying get rid of it. He's saying there it is, but we must recognise that it is created. And I think it's it's interesting and, and was very irritating to, to people studying language and, and so on because we do it with books as well. We, we think that a book has a meaning. And this meaning is somehow, again, like the structuralist thing, outside of the book. So this book means X. Actually, we don't read like that. We read in a way that words are sort of stories we keep in our head and then the scenes shift and all, and all of this. You don't need to extract a meaning to enjoy the book. You don't have to see God in order to enjoy religion. You don't have to find truth in order to do philosophy. Because let's face it, if you did have to find truth in order to do philosophy, no one would do philosophy. So it's, it's that. He's just saying this thing we're striving for is a generator of meaning, but what it is not is provable in any sense. And, and it, you know, it's similar to what Nietzsche said, God is dead, which is not just about God. It's about the fact, let's, you know, let's look at what the God concept is doing rather than keep striving for him or her 
or whatever it is. Yeah, you talk quite interestingly about his relationship um, with religion, um, oh. actually, and um, and related to his uh, Jewishness, because you, you, perhaps the stereotype would be as a sort of postmodern philosopher that he's absolutely opposed to all sorts of um, transcendent ideas, but he, oh. he 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 sort of allows allows a space for it, but in a kind of peculiar way. Absolutely, yeah. That, that was one of the things I, I found really interesting about him, actually, because I'd sort of dismissed him in exactly the terms you're talking about. And he did say at one point, you know, I'm properly described as an atheist, you know, in his real life. Let's call it that. And I, I actually did the quotation marks in the air then, which is another Derridian thing that's just passed into, into the culture. Um, but having decided that philosophy is a type of narrative, that literature obviously is a type of narrative for describing the world, Religion is another type of narrative for describing the world. And it functions, doesn't function, brings people happiness, brings people sadness, all of these things, but is an incredibly serious part of human existence. Um, and partially that was his, his Jewishness, and he did write a lot about his Jewishness later on, um, but also wrote a lot about Christianity and later a lot about Islam and, and so on. So he, he, he really saw religion as an interesting way of looking at the world. And interesting is a, is, a, is a silly term for something far deeper than that, that, you know, it's, it's not enough to say there is no God. OK, let's let's say for the moment there's not. But look at all the stuff, the ideas, the, the, the human relationships that religion is is bringing forth. That's interesting. He also finds it particularly interesting because religion tends to work in a less discursive way than philosophy although great philosophy does as well. Religion, religion tends to tell stories. It tends to have contradictions. It tends to take folk memories. It, it, it's much more mysterious and poetic in many ways. And Derrida was addicted to, to the strange and the poetic because in a sense, he thought that that was closer to human experience. Again, human experience is a lot weirder than good old plodding philosophy is, is saying. And, and in fact, you know, many of the religious sort of stuff that comes out now, the very narrow versions of religion, they're just saying, isn't it weird? Some, pick up the Bible, pick up any of your books of religion. There's a lot of weird stuff going on, but it only feels weird because we're being told it's weird. Actually, that's kind of how most of us feel in many, many ways. You know, when we, 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 we tend to live a lot more poetically than is advertised by traditional philosophies or religions. And you talk about reading books, but also there's a, there's a great passage in your own book when you talk about, um, you know, the process of writing a book or even, mm. say, recording a podcast or, mm, or yes. doing anything. Um, you, we, we know how we construct these things. They're from little bits of things that then add up together and then we cut things out and then we reconfigure them. And then we, at the end of the day, after editing and all those processes that are part of our uh, part of our job, we have a sort of coherent product that we then yes. give over to someone. Of course, if you've sort of picked up a, a piece of writing or a book that you've read yourself, mm. you just you can always just you see the gaps, you see where you've, you've covered over everything, you see where you've tried to pull the wool over the reader's eyes because you haven't quite got that bit. Or yeah, that's um, right. And yeah. so, in a way, that's quite a good. Does that relate to his own way of writing? He sort of he splays it open. You know, he just he lets you see. He does. Um, yeah. The gaps yeah, and inconsistencies yeah. that of, of um, that we all experience when we're first writing. Yeah, that, that absolutely. And I mean, that's he he did perform that quite often in his text, particularly in the seventies. He would actually have his notes, or he'd have marginal stuff, or he'd he'd do all those things. Um, I mean, he wasn't against the coherence, obviously, because what you want to do is make something as coherent as possible, um, and that's the trick, as it were. But 
to to mistake that coherence for a truth of some sort is is incorrect. And you know, as, uh, all of us who have written or all of us who have done anything like that, we know how artificial that situation can be. Uh, I've, in a sense, enjoyed the Zoom world that we're in at the moment for, for this particular reason. That you know, uh, I'm sure our listeners can imagine that you know we're staring at each other on a computer screen at the moment we've 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 organized all of this if i say something outrageous wrong or whatever i can say can we just cut that and i'll go back or you can just go pete was being really boring let's get rid of it and then what you produce at the end of it is a beautiful piece of of rate of of podcasting that has gotten rid of those gaps so what there is saying is you know we, the beautiful thing you produce at the end of it hopefully is valid that's what people want and that's great but we can also explore how that came about, what happened in doing that. And we can do that with the most coherent piece of poetry, piece of fiction, with the most coherent philosophy um, and, and all of those things. And, and what he's saying is that you, you look for these little gaps. So you look for these little things that are missing in a, in a philosopher. You see where a text is fighting with itself. And those tension points can often be very, very revealing. Um, to take one really brief example with Husserl, he noticed with Husserl, whenever Husserl kind of got a bit into a bit of a mess trying to write about time, he always evokes God. Now, God plays no part in Husserl's philosophy apart from those moments. And Derrida picks him up and says, look, he doesn't know what to say. So he said God again. And that's very revealing. So, so those sort of incoherences and inconsistencies are very much what Derrida was looking to, to bring out in his thinking. So you, you talk about how he, you know, he was a, a philosopher in the 1960s and um, in 1968, a sort of time of political revolution. Um, but Derrida seemed to be, um, because, because perhaps because he was more interested in looking at contradictions and ambiguities and he, he didn't take a stand, did he? He didn't, he didn't sort of go on demonstrations and call for the end of the republic or, or no. anything like that. He seemed, in, the, in his earlier days, he seemed a bit more apolitical. Is that, is that fair? I'm not sure if you'd say apolitical. He's, he did go on the 1968 marches, but he had this huge problem with joining. He had two pro huge problems, actually, joining and deciding. Um, and a lot of his writing is about the inability to join and the inability to decide, or at least his philosophy is about the moment before you make a decision. And there are political consequences of that. You know, he, he would have been first against the wall in the old joke um, because he would always be saying, you can't make these big decisions. Once you make those big decisions, no, he's not saying you can't make them. He's saying once you make them, then you have imposed a violence on the thought. Okay. Now that can be can lead to political quietism. It can lead to all sorts of quietism, particularly political quietism. If you really need to make a decision, then unfortunately you often have to park a load of your beliefs in order to do so. Now Derrida really struggled with that. Later in life, he became quite politically active. There was a bit, they call it the ethical turn, or, and, and we may discuss it, but he really started to look at ethics uh, as they related to deconstruction, got quite involved um, in what was happening in South Africa, got quite involved in sort of the, the tensions that happened after September 11. Um, he did put himself out there, um, and, and also in minor ways, you know, defending philosophy in the academy and so, and so forth. But certainly he would not ever be seen as the person at the front of the front of the, the protest march. Certainly he would not be the sort of person, and this he had to battle with this when he was at school, who would join the Communist Party, for instance. 
because again, without wanting to say it all comes from his past, that, that violent thing where he's suddenly in the Jewish group and here's Jewish, that's what you are, and then suddenly not, really scarred him in lots of ways. And, and any one of us who's been involved in sort of political movements, you do have those moments, don't you, where you go, oh, I've got to go along with this. I, I have my doubts, but you know, the, this is demanded of the situation. Uh, Derrida found it very, very hard to park that stuff. It was only after the fall of communism um, that he wrote um, his book Spectres of Marx, which mm, seems sort of yeah. appropriate, just as everyone was saying that communism was, uh, well, this was dead, this was the thing that's gone away now, and the triumph of um, yeah, the end of history uh, and all that. That was the time yeah. he chose to write about Marx. Yeah, it's it's very Derrida. It's, it's what uh, sometimes is exhilarating, sometimes is really, really annoying about him, that he just, you know, he, he always has to swim against the tide, as it were. So, you know, 1989... 91-ish triumph of you know Western capitalism. Everyone's celebrating the street. And Derrida says, well, okay, let's talk about Marx now. Um, and writes a book that I think is a really good book. I think after of grammatology, it's perhaps his most interesting and moving book. A lot of people hate it for precisely the reasons we're talking about. Like, you know, if you want to talk about Marx, then, you know, get on the picket lines, you know, fight, fight the battles. Uh, but Derrida looks at Marx as a concept, as a, again, looking at how the word works. What does Marx do in, in our talk, in, in, in this triumphal moment of capitalism? What is Marx doing? Um, so he does that. He also does a thing which, again, is very Derrida. He reads against a writer. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online, and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Marx talks about materialism. Everything's materialism. We're formed by material conditions and so forth. If we can get rid of the soul, get rid of God, get rid of all those things, much better. Let's look at that version. And as we're finding God in Husserl, Derrida goes through Marx and says, well, he keeps talking about ghosts. He keeps talking about spectres. He keeps quoting Shakespeare plays and Hamlet's ghosts and all of these sort of things. Ghosts just run through Marx all the time. He did it with Hegel as well. You know, Hegel's talking about the spirit moving through Derrida said, well, let's look at his family life. How was that? What was that like? You know, let's look at him doing the dishes, as it were. You know, so he's constantly doing that. So that's the other, the other kind of thing that comes out of that. But also, it was a political intervention. He was saying that Western capitalism is saying it's terrific, saying it's wonderful. There's actually more slaves in the world now than there have been before. There's actually more people 
who are poorer than there ever have been before. All of those things. So let's let's not be triumphalistic about this. Let's see why people are being triumphalistic about it. And let's stick marks back in here and see what that does to them. So yeah, very interesting book. The ethical turn, he started to write about um, uh, friendships and the friendships he'd had with um, uh, with philosophers. And probably one of his most controversial was with uh, Paul de Man, who was another sort yes. of great sort of deconstruction uh, yeah. uh, a favourite. And, and this is the point in the book when I'm trying to pick up, you know, in generally it's very uh, positive about Derrida, but here in the book, you, you do say that he took a took a wrong turning in his in the controversy over demand. It, it was, for those who don't know, Paul Demand was Derrida's closest philosophical friend, I think it's fair to say. They spoke on the phone most days. Um, Derrida, I also think when you read him, is perhaps the most brilliant of the Derridians in two ways. One is he takes Derrida's insights and goes with them, you know, talks about rhetoric and so forth. And, and having had that insight just goes, yep. But also he's the most creative of the thinkers about Derrida. He, 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 he's a brilliant thinker. He's a brilliant thinker in his own right, basically, who happened to be a Derridian in, in some sense. But it comes out shortly after the man has died that he wrote for a Nazi collaborationist newspaper during you know, 41, 42. Okay, let's take that on board. You know, who knows what you do in that situation there, but for the grace of God, go I, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, and and all the documents were in, in plain sight, as it were. They were all available. So he wasn't, in a sense, hiding it. But then it later turns out he was kicked off of that paper for being unethical, which is quite a thing to do. You know, get kicked off a Nazi newspaper for being unethical. He sets up a shell company and embezzles a load of money. He flees, uh, flees Belgium and arrives in America faking a load of... Um, university credentials. He gets married again in America and is a bigamist because he's got a wife back back home, as it were. Um, so he does all. This. He's he's basically a horrible, <laughs> a horrible, horrible man who's been living lies for you know, 30, 30 something years. This all comes out um, gradually at first, then in a rush, and, and you know suddenly. And Derrida is hammered for it. You know, at, this this is a typical Derridian. This is exactly the sort of person they are. You know, they don't believe in truth, and here's here's a great big liar to prove it. Derrida reacted, as he did in so many ways in his life, as a friend. And I think friendship was a huge ethical notion of his. And in his personal life, he really he lived that to the full. And it was one of the interesting and beautiful things about writing about him and reading him. With the man, he wrote a defence, let's call it a defence, essentially saying, but it must have been pretty horrible being Paul a man, living with this lie. Let's explore that. Now... Let's explore that in a couple of hundred years. You know, that's that's the sort of thing where in 200 years, people can go back and say, well, that must have been very interesting living that lie and so forth. Paul Demand, this figure I can find in Wikipedia who, who, who wrote during the 60s, 70s and 80s. Let's explore that. To do it immediately was wrong. And the, the paper he wrote is incredibly annoying and irritating and makes you cross the Derrida. And, you know, you just want to tear it up, basically, or I do anyway. Um, but it, but leading from that, and I do admire him from this because he'd had a lot of controversial stuff happen in the 80s and 90s and was really getting hammered. This is when he's suddenly incredibly famous, which is a surprise to him, and lots of people hate him. He takes what is often called the ethical turn, but in fact, it's more that he highlighted a particular part of deconstruction that hadn't really been noted before. Um, he didn't have to do that. You know, he could have just trucked along deconstructing texts and so forth. But this idea of justice and law comes to him. Uh, it comes to him also because he spends a night in a Czech prison, which is the most horrible night of his life. Um, 
this this arrives and he has this idea that the deconstruction is in a sense justice within any text texts aren't cohering so they are functioning as law does striving for this justice striving for meaning and he really redirects in many many of his writings to looking at this idea of justice what justice does the power of justice the striving for justice the failures of justice and it's a huge part of his later writings and a huge part of his writings towards religion again and and towards these ideas of, of of very human concerns and um and really interesting and, and a lesser known part of his work so towards the end he, he definitely gets more engaged with as you say um, um um the ethical aspect of things i want to just just summing up at the end of um your time with derrida what where do you think his gaps are where are his sort of aporia where are the things that he sort of tries to cover up or obfuscate in his own um uh, in his own work, if we can deconstruct Derrida, as it were. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, he 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 was very interested in secrets. Um, the idea of a secret as, as something that you know you cannot tell, you do not tell. Once you tell, it's not a secret. And and he wrote a lot of confessional writings towards the end of his life, including one called Circumfession. Intriguingly, at one point he talks about the. In fact, in his very last interview. Um, a week or so before he died, he said, you know, there's one secret that I, I will take to the grave with me. Um, I mean, he, he didn't live an exemplary life always. I think he often strove to. I think there was a part of him that, that you know, as, as I say in the epigram for the book, he just loved books. And he, he, he ideally, he just would have spent his entire life reading books. And he did have this kind of guilt about some of what he'd done, as it were, that he'd introduced this, this shaky doubt into philosophy that there, there's, there is no pre-Derrida now in philosophy. You, you have to confront the things that he brought up for good or bad. And I can, I can certainly see in some of his later writings, the person who would be awake at 3 a.m. going, what if, what if I'm wrong? I might actually be wrong. And I think this drove him, but I think that's kind of the, 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 the big thing that somewhere in, in there, I think Derrida really would have liked to write a really simple philosophy paper about truth like you know he, he he did when he was 14 or 15 and i think that's you know that's the thing that there there, there is a really coherent derrida text that, that never quite quite came out or is in the bottom drawer somewhere maybe that's derrida's big secret maybe we'll find it one day um yeah peter salmon thank you so much it's been brilliant right thank you very much for asking me yeah take care that's all for us thank you for joining us this week on the prospect interview if you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.